Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Roger Stacey, and I'm a member of the Athenaeum. I'm also the vice president of the Boston branch of the English-speaking union, uh, which is the co-sponsor today of this talk. And if you don't mind, I'll use this opportunity to tell you a little bit about the English-speaking union, just a very little bit. Uh, it was organized after World War I uh, to maintain the friendly relations between America and the United States, uh, two democracies sharing similar values in a similar language. Uh, there are now 35 branches in England, 68 in the United States, and as a result of the growth of English worldwide, there are 64 branches now around the world. And we like to think that we use English to foster friendly relations among the nations of the world. Um, the Boston branch also sponsors a Shakespeare competition, which over the years has uh, encouraged something like 30,000 students around the Boston area to study and recite Shakespeare. Uh, we have lectures such as this, and we even have uh, social occasions of one sort or another. Uh, if you're at all interested in the English-speaking union, I invite you to uh, look at our website. There are three, actually. There's the international one that is based in London. There's an American one, and we have a Boston branch website as well. And that's that. Uh, I'd like to introduce now David Loch, a, a graduate of Oxford, who, enterprisingly enough, founded his own bank, uh, was a member of the London Stock Exchange, and when he sold his business to a, a firm, another firm, he took up his first love, which was history. Um, he lives in Kent with his wife, and uh, he has five children and six grandchildren. He's a trustee of a library quite similar to this, the London Library in St. James in uh, London. Uh, <clears throat> he um, has written a book that I think has uh, been very well received, and I hope you will enjoy his talk. I won't actually say very much more except to say that it's called Historical Accountancy, which is a category I never came across, uh, but which uh, I think any number of politicians in this country uh, would be well served by, uh, by the similar examination in the field. David Love. Thank you very much, um, Roger. I have to say, I, it, it was a review that called it historical accountancy, and I hated the term because it sounds so dry, doesn't it? And actually, I've tried to write a very human book because I just see money as a route into the, into the person. More about that in a moment. What I, what I would like to do straight away is to say, first of all, thank you to you all for coming today. I hope you can hear me. Um, I'd like to say thank you to the English-speaking union, the co-sponsors, and thank you particularly to the Athenaeum for giving me the chance to talk in this wonderful room and space, uh, particularly as it, is a, um, it has been an ambition of mine to come to the Athenaeum, as I am a trustee of the London Library, which, as Roger says, is, a, you know, it is a, the nearest we have in London to a comparable institution to this. It is a private member's library, bang smack in the middle of London in St. James's Square. It contains almost every book about the humanities that's been written since um, 175 years ago, started by Thomas Carlyle. And it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. It hasn't got quite as much space as here, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but if, if, if I see you afterwards, and if any of you would be interested when you're in London to come and, and have a look, do, come, do mention that to me, and I'd be very happy to take you there if I can or introduce you there. Um, and, and we have an American Friends of the London Library. Anyway, enough of that. Um, let me talk about my book for the next, I'm told, 45 minutes. Um, it's called No More Champagne. And I guess during the talk, you'll probably discover why. Um, but uh, the first thing you might be saying is, oh my goodness, not another book on Churchill. Uh, 
And why write about his money? And, uh, well, part of my answer to that is, I think uh, it's a quote I used right at the beginning of the introduction. And this is Churchill. The only thing that worries me in life is money. And that's what he wrote to his brother. Uh, And he didn't admit to many other worries. And, you know, if you you want to, uh, up to now, if you wanted to investigate this, the, um, the first two volumes of his official biography mention quite a bit about money, either in the book itself or the accompanying documents volumes, his early money problems. The, the, those two volumes were written by his own son, Randolph Churchill. And the reason I suspect that Randolph Churchill mentioned quite a bit about his father's money problems was that he'd always tried to get some money off his dad to, to solve his own gambling debts and overspending. And he knew how hard it had been to get money from his father. So he followed the scene. But then Randolph died in 1968 with only two books of the eventual eight written of the official biography. And the man who carried on, who had been one of his research assistants, a man called Martin Gilbert, great historian, Wonderful historian. It's a magisterial work. It took him 20 years. But, uh, you know, but by the time he takes over, Churchill has reached the stage where he's at the center of British politics. And Martin Gilbert is primarily a political historian. And that's really the, what he writes about. And so this theme that had been quite prominent in, in Randolph Churchill's first two volumes sort of fades out. Um, and I, I, I suppose I tacked that away with some curiosity at the back of my mind. And then I, as Roger mentioned, I, went, I spent my career in what in Britain we used to call private banking, we now call wealth management, and I suspect you've made the same journey in nomenclature. And um, it sort of bothered me that the, the story wasn't more complete, because these little fragments of information about Churchill's money problems that poke their way up above the surface don't hang together, didn't hang together. And then I read a book um, which is actually edited by Mary, was edited by Mary Soames, the, the Churchill's daughter, the, the youngest daughter. And it's called Speaking for Themselves. Uh, a curious title because it's actually a um, volume of their correspondence together, Winston and Clementine Churchill, throughout their lives. They wrote to each other lots because they spent lots of time apart because they were both pretty difficult to live with. And their solution to that was to spend a lot of time apart. But, and then they wrote to each other. And from those letters, um, it became obvious to me that their financial problems didn't just fade away at all. They, were, they remained center stage, right at the center of their minds for almost all their life. And I thought, this is strange. Um, I must find out more. And uh, I tried to find out who'd written about it, and nobody had. Uh, which, so I thought, you know, my retirement job, um, as Roger mentioned, because I knew from my work that money is, in fact, Um, you know, it needn't be a dry subject. If you're going to do your job as a private banker or wealth manager properly, what you have to do is sit down with people and listen to them, ask them questions, and listen, and not judge, and get to know them. Uh, And and money, so money is, it tells you a lot about the changes of society and about individuals. And um, I thought that I would just start by reading a little, a tiny little passage referring to the changes in society. Uh, Because Churchill lived for 90 years. He was born in 1875 when, you know, we're still, we've still got 25 years to go of Queen Victoria's reign. And British society is pretty rigid in its 
sort of silos, you know, the aristocracy, the professions, trade, working class. And each generation aimed to sort of uh, dispose of its assets in a very structured way through de settlements, particularly the marriage settlement, much more important than the will. It ordained the way in which assets would cascade down to future generations. And, um, you know, it's the, it's the age of which Trollope writes. And yet, move on 90 years, 1965, as Churchill dies, four young men from Liverpool, working-class lads, alias the Beatles, had made a million pounds each. Complete change. And... Somewhere down the line here, in about the mid-1930s, Churchill addresses this social change on the occasion of the death of his cousin, the Duke of Marlborough, with whom he'd grown up, really. And he, he writes an obituary for the Times. During the 42 years that he was Duke of Marlborough, the organism of English society underwent a complete revolution the three or four hundred families which for three or four hundred years guided the fortunes of the nation from a small struggling community to the headship of a vast and still unconquered empire lost their authority and control. The class to which the Duke belonged were not only almost entirely relieved of their political responsibilities but they were, to a very large extent, stripped of their property and, in many cases, driven from their homes. A bit melodramatic, but <laughs> he often was. So, um, at the individual level, I think you can learn, you learn from what people tell you about their priorities when you talk to them about money. Now, is it looking after their children? Is it smart holiday homes somewhere? Is it philanthropy? Is it, do they leverage themselves up or do they, if, you know, do they pay down their debt if some money comes their way? Is it going down to the casino, as it often was for Churchill? So these sort of choices can tell you a lot about the person. And so I have tried to use his financial records, which have hitherto been unresearched. You know, his bank statements were my biggest friends, really. They're all there in the archives since 1907. Um, and through that, I've tried to get at the person, the human being. That's why I didn't like this thing called historical accountancy, because that's, you know, that's not what I'm about. Now, obviously, I can't talk about 90 years um, in the uh, time that remains. So um, I thought that I would talk a bit about, uh, I, I talk about some of the early years and the 1920s, 30s as, as a way in really to the, um, the American dimension of Churchill's finances and life, which you'll see, I hope, are pretty crucial and interesting. So a little bit about the family background, I think, to make sense of that. Churchill was, uh, you know, the two families that came together on an afternoon in 1873 in, in August in Cowes on the Isle of Wight at a yachting regatta were the Churchills and the, Jer the Jeromes, the Jeromes of New York. And the Churchills were, uh, the sort of head of the family was, was the Duke of Marlborough, the seventh Duke it was by then. And, you know, Duke, there aren't that many dukes in England, and they had to be very rich, because in order to maintain their status as sort of princes, virtually, they had to have lots of staff, and they had to have big houses and estates. And, but the, the Marlboroughs were quite recent dukes, because the, John uh, Churchill was made the first Duke of Marlborough only in something like 1708 or 1709. I can't remember the exact date, but it was to commemorate his victories 
on behalf of the Allies in Europe over the French. And he was showered with gifts of money and paintings and gems and rare books by his queen, by the parliament, by princes in the Low Countries. And he had a very astute wife, Sarah, the first duchess, and she, even after, you know, she, she survived him by about 20 years. She continued to build up the estate, but at its zenith, uh, it, it only had about 100,000 acres. And by ducal standards, that was not that, you know, not top rank at all. The top rank ducal families had about half a million acres. Um, and I'm afraid that the following five or six generations dissipated that, what wealth there was. They were a strange lot, the Churchills. Um, I mean, they had some collectors, they loved gardening, but they also wasted a lot of money on extravagances and um, gambling and mistresses and all sorts of things. So by the time this encounter happened in 1873, the paintings were gone or going. The gems were gone or going. You know, it was down to the core that was protected by Act of Parliament around Blenheim Palace. Actually, the bailiffs had been in, but they weren't allowed, you know, the, there was a core, fortunately, protected by Act of Parliament. And if we switch to the Jeromes, who are a huge genetic influence on Churchill, um, the, the picture... I mean, it's obviously different in origin, but the outcome's about the same, because Leonard Jerome was an early Wall Street adventurer and risk-taker. Um, fabulous character to study. And he had made and lost his fortune you know, two or three or four times, really, on Wall Street in its early days, when it was obviously a very, very risky um, occupation. And there certainly wasn't the government to bail you out uh, when things went wrong. And so by, by the time that this meeting took place in 1873, Leonard Jerome, I'm afraid, was on a sort of terminal downward slope. And so each family, we have this wonderful sort of dance around the marriage settlement negotiations when, they, when Lord Randolph Churchill, the seventh duke's son, second son, and Jenny Jerome see each other and fall instantly, and genuinely, I think, in love. The, the, the families try to arrange the marriage settlement, and each thinks that the other is going to be the savior. You know, each thinks the other's got lots of money. And there is a gradual sort of um, unveiling of the fact. They suddenly realize, whoops, there's not much on either side. And, um, but still, you know, by, by most standards, there was, they, they could have been comfortable had they been the, the two, the young couple, had they been a bit more restrained. But Jenny Jerome uh, had been brought up in um, Paris by her mother. She was a very accomplished woman, concert standard pianist, highly read, highly educated. I mean, bear in mind, English girls at the time weren't educated at all, really. Um, and uh, she kept on buying her clothes in Paris. And they, they, uh, her husband kept going to the clubs in London and uh, gambling uh, or racing. And so very soon they got into debt and big debt. And um, it was, uh, this was the background against which Winston Churchill was brought up. His parents were always short of money, but still dressed properly and all. And his father was ill, very ill, and he died in his 40s, uh, probably of syphilis. And um, it, it, he, he would have died penniless, really, had it not been for, uh, very late in his life, he, you know, he realized he needed to earn some money. And Duke's sons did not go into business. Business was beneath them. He had some offers, but no. Not on. So uh, the Rothschilds came up with a solution, which was that he should lead a gold expedition, gold prospecting expedition to southern Africa. 
which was the new frontier for gold. So uh, he corrals money from his friends and family, and um, off they go to what's now Zimbabwe. They find not one single, they find nothing, I'm afraid. And all the investors lose all their money. However, on the way home, he is told, he's given a tip. The, the new area is the Witzfotersland. And he's given the chance to get in on the ground level of a new company that is going to shortly afterwards be IPO'd. Uh, it became, it was called first Deep Levels, and then it became Rand Mining. And he, he bought in, he borrowed money from the Rothschilds, bought in, and the shares shot up by more than 100 times. So that, for the final two years of his life, that's what kept them going. And then he was able to hand over, in, in his will, uh, he gave, he put the, he, it in trust for his wife. No allowance for the children, unusual at the time. But it, the, what went into the trust was worth... I'm going to use current money terms because it's easiest. In the book, I use the nominal thing, but at the top of each page, I give the, sorry, not the nominal, the, the amount of the time, but I, I put the exchange rates and inflation rates at the top of each page. He left her $8 million. So when you read Churchill in my early life, saying my father died when his assets equaled his liabilities, you get an early clue that Churchill was not very good with numbers. Because actually, his wife left, his, his dad left his mum $8 million in trust. The terms of the trust were she was only to enjoy the income. Um, the lawyers were completely asleep on the job. She affected not to understand the difference between income and capital. And she started spending the capital. And meanwhile, and enjoying herself, by the way, the first thing she did was went off to Paris bought a flat, and she entertained a succession of men there, um, including some very prominent Americans, some of whom, you know, uh, Astor, Burke Cochrane, um, and the Prince of Wales, by the way. She was probably the leading mistress to the Prince of Wales for a couple of years. Um, she was quite a lady. And... Um, Meanwhile, her son is in India as a young cavalry officer. No allowance, so he depends on his mum to top up his army rations, which are very low. You know, the cavalry officers had to get a top up from their family. And she is erratic in paying him anything. And um, they have this wonderful correspondence, which occupies um, one of the chapters quite substantially, really. Because she is, he depends on her. She starts to educate him, sends him books, Macaulay, given to read. She acts as his PR agent back at home. She's his, he is her great hope for the future. Um, and he's very appreciative of all that she's doing like that. However, uh, she, you know, the money is a constant problem between them. They're always, the, they, let, they write to each other weekly. The letters take two or three weeks to get to the other side, so they're not quite sure which one they're responding to. But it keeps coming back to money. And she says to him, you know, she gets summoned to the bank to cover some check he's written on an empty account. And she says, you, you, we cannot go on like this. This is impossible. You're putting me in an impossible position. If you can't live within your means, you'll have to leave the army and you can look after yourself. And the, um, the force of that statement is somewhat undermined when a month or two later she has to send her son documents to regularize the fact that she has now eaten through a quarter of the inheritance and he, she needs him to sign some papers in order to restructure. Um, and so this is what Ch Churchill writes back to her. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading it because I think it is so sort of pregnant. Well, A, a it explains his philosophy about spending money, and B, it's, it's, mm, there are 
uh, I don't know what the, the, the opposite of an echo is, but it's sort of pregnant with the future of his language. He's only 20 or 21. Speaking quite frankly on the subject, there is no doubt that we are both, you and I, equally thoughtless, spendthrift and extravagant. We both know what is good and we like to have it. Arrangements for paying are left to the future. We shall very soon come to the end of our tether unless a considerable change comes over our fortunes and dispositions. I sympathize with all your extravagances even more than you do with mine. It seems just as suicidal to me when you spend 200 pounds, $30,000, on a ball dress, as it does to you when I purchase a new polo pony for 100 pounds, $15,000. And yet, I feel that you ought to have the dress and I the polo pony. <laughs> the pinch of the matter is that we are damned poor. And so he, he deals with this situation by starting to write, while he's still a soldier, writing on, on, on military campaigns. She sells the articles in London. And then she says, darling, why don't you make them into a book? He says, good idea. Will you find me a publisher? So she does. She finds an agent. She finds a publisher. And off he goes. He gets published. He starts earning. And he decides after a couple of campaigns, one in what's now Afghanistan, one in Sudan, he can make a living out of this, better living than the army. So he resigns from the army and gets back to England. Uh, we're now 1899. He's 24. And there are rumblings of the Boer War between Britain and the, the sort of Dutch Boer Republic down in South Africa. It's all about mining resources, really. And um, the newspapers, who have noticed him by now, start bidding for his services against each other as, as a correspondent, special war correspondent. And uh, he, he settles for today's equivalent of just under $40,000 a month from time of leaving Britain to the time of getting back plus expenses, which was a big add-on. And he goes down there, and uh, even better in a way, he's captured soon after it starts. Uh, and then he escapes, international celebrity. And he parlays that into more books, more articles, and a speaking tour in the UK and then the US. And he comes over here, his first prolonged, he'd had a short trip on the way to Cuba, but this is his first prolonged tour here in uh, the end of 1900, early 1901. He's, he doesn't make as much money as he does in England. He's a bit disappointed by some of the audiences because actually there, there was a, quite a lot of sympathy for the Boers here. Um, but by the time he's 25, entirely through his own efforts, He's made today's equivalent of one and a half million dollars. And he writes home to his mum saying, I'm really proud. Not one man in a million could have done that. And it is self-made. You know, he had not inherited a single Marlborough stroke Churchill acre or pound or anything. He, he was a self-made man. And, and if you're looking for a reason why he goes from the Tory party to the Liberals a year or two later, the Liberals being the party of self-made men, there, I suggest, is a very powerful explanation. That's where his sympathies were. Don't, you know, well, the, the traditional explanation is he was a sort of psycho, uh, um, attached to free trade. He had some sort of belief in free trade. Well, I think it's much more rooted in his own, how he'd made his money. So that's, that's the early years, really. And I, I, I think that's important to understand what happens later. And so now I'm going to skip, if I may, I mean, the, the, the 1900s, they're interesting, they're lovely. He reads Clementine, you know, they marry, she's got no money either. Um, but the story really is that he spends his way through what he'd saved up. Uh, and so by the time the First World War arrives, he's deep into the banks for borrowing. Um, 
and uh, he's also deep into tradesmen because he spends over the odds, as I explain here. You know, everything has to be satin-lined, and he, it, I'm easily satisfied by the best, is the philosophy. Um, and uh, well, part of the way he survives is by not paying his bills for years, years. You know, he doesn't pay his tailor for about five or six years. I've got a copy out where I'm going to be signing afterwards of, of a champagne bill, or a wine bill from his wine merchants. Actually, it's dated 1935, but the habit started before the First World War. At the time the First World War broke out, he owed his wine merchants $75,000. Because he hadn't paid them for a long time. Or he just pays little bits but keeps the account. You know, they were second bankers to him. Um, so, by the, t the you know, the war wasn't great for anybody's finances, the First World War. So, um, by 1920, he owes the banks about $1.6 million in today's money. And um, he, he overextends himself a bit on, on the housing front. Uh, and rescue number one has to be summoned by one of his mother's friends, a guy called Saroni's Castle. It's a fairly, by later standards, it's a fairly modest rescue. It's only about $300,000 this guy makes out a check for. <laughs> um, and then Saroni's Castle quite conveniently died about three months later. And as far as I can see, his, his executors never pressed for repayment. Um, and then there's a huge stroke of luck for Churchill in 1921. There's a train crash in Wales. And on that train, and sadly killed, was a cousin of his, an Irish cousin. They shared a great-grandmother who, in her will in 1862, had tried to look after the younger children or grandchildren of her families. She married, actually, the Duke of Marlborough. She married this, the sixth Duke, I can't remember. And she tried to make sure that the younger children were looked after, because normally, you know, the older ones were okay. The main pile went to them. And uh, the Londonderries were first in line, but when this guy was killed in the train crash, there were no more male Londonderries left in the line. And so the money jumped across the water to the Churchills, and because Lord Randolph Churchill was dead, it, it fell into Winston Churchill's hands. He was the eldest son of Lord Randolph Churchill. After tax, uh, five, five million dollars. Then his mother fell down the stairs and soon afterwards died. And so what was left in the trusts came down to him, still in trust. He could only enjoy the income, but that was about another three million. So suddenly, you know, you'd think transforming. And that's what, I mean, Clementine was absolutely thrilled because she hated not being able to pay the bills. Um, the following day, this is the day after she uh, received the news, or the day after the, the crash, and they were told about it. The following day, she was still absorbing the news. I can't describe, this is her writing to him, I can't describe the blessed feeling of relief that we need never, never be worried about money again. And then she puts in brackets, except through our own fault, of course. It is like floating in a bath of cream does that ring any bells? <laughs> anyway, that's, that's how she felt. It was such relief. Sadly, the bath of cream soon ran out because um, no, their spending went up a, a notch or two. Bought a Rolls Royce. Ladies' maid traveled everywhere. His valet traveled everywhere with them. And um, he gambled. He, his gambling went up a notch or two. He still writes to her and says, um, darling, I was at the casino last night. It wasn't a great night, but don't worry. I didn't play high. I played sensibly. Uh, but the bank statements tell a different story. Because 
he has to draw money at the casino window, and it goes through the bank statement, doesn't it? Bank statements don't lie. So I can see what he lost. Because I know he, he didn't spend the money, you know, it didn't go on his living expenses because he used Thomas Cook to pay all those and tips and things when he was traveling. So, I mean, in 1923, he lost at least uh, the equivalent of $300,000 gambling. Sometimes, well, one night it was about $20,000. Um, and then the other thing that went wrong was Chartwell, which some of you may have visited. If you're, if you're in England, do go and see it. It's just south of London. It's his country home. Uh, he bought it soon after inheriting this money. Uh, and it needed a lot of work and enlarging. And he didn't really ever, he, he chose an inexperienced architect. He went and visited every week, which meant he changed his mind. They never had a proper master plan, and the thing went three times over budget. And that was another big, big chunk gone. All of which qualified him to, um, superbly to become what we call Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, <laughs> in 1925 and that I mean there are some there I haven't got time to go into it but the story of what he did with the chairman of the Inland Revenue to try and solve his own personal tax problems while he's Chancellor of the Exchequer would not run today so at the end he comes out he can see that his party is going to lose the election in 1929 and he very sensibly starts to line up stuff in advance he lines up articles, he lines up, in particular, a, a big book, his biography of his ancestor, John Duke of Marlborough. And he gets a huge advance for it because he gets a publisher who wants to break into the big time and thinks, Churchill, you know, that's my route in. And in today's money, $1.5 million advance, a third of it payable up front. And the bank's been giving him a bit of a difficulty and so he says to them, don't worry, I've got this wonderful contract. I'm about to get a big fat up signing fee. And, and they say, well, you will promise to send it to us, won't you? And he says, yes. But then he decides to take a break from Britain, as he had done when he lost power seven years earlier. And his agent, who is American, new agent, Adam Curtis Brown, says, don't go back to France go to America. Go and see America. Build up your name. Build up your public in America. He says, good idea. And he gets uh, a guy who he'd worked with closely in the First World War on munition supplies called Bernard Baruch, name I'm sure you're familiar with, to um, fix various people to host him all around the US because the second sons of British aristocracy did not pay for themselves very often. You know, they liked being guests. <laughs> and so Bernard Baruch did his stuff. He lined him up all over. And, and they started, the Churchill Troop, as he called them, started in um, Canada. They got Canadian Pacific to give them the um, ship's passage across. And Canadian Pacific also gave them a railway, private railway car to cross Canada in return for four speeches. And as he crossed Canada... Churchill started, saw all these oil derricks going up, and he thought, this is fantastic. You know, this is the land of opportunity. And he starts investing. He, he, he writes to his publisher for, for the book on Marlborough and says, you know I told you to send the advance to my bank. Change of plan. Would you please send it to my stockbroker instead? And he sends it, and, and, and so it goes to the stockbroker. And then he gets a chunk of it sent out to Canada. And he opens accounts in Winnipeg, Vancouver. He buys into small oil companies that never find oil. Um, then he goes down the west coast to San Francisco, where Bernard Baruch introduces him to a man called Van Antwerp, William Van Antwerp, a stockbroker, Anglophile, collector of rare books, and they get on like a house on fire. And uh, this guy starts giving him tips. The one I remember is, is, is a company called Simmons, 
that make mattresses, and I'm told they still make mattresses. And their strapline was, you can't go wrong on a Simmons mattress. Well, maybe you couldn't on the mattress, but you can on the shares. Because he invested, you know, he, he got sucked in. It was the late stages of a, it was a raging bull market. In San Francisco, he write, from San Francisco, he writes home to his wife saying, darling, this is just amazing. They, you know, in the hotel windows, they, they have blackboards. And every few minutes, they're rubbing out the prices and putting in a higher price. And then he has to go across the country to, by rail to New York. He gives Van Antwerp permission to deal while he's going. Van Antwerp says, bit of a problem. Your bank looks at it, might be putting up bank rate, you know, be careful. But when he gets to New York, Bernard Baruch is his host, pays his hotel bills, sits him down at a desk, introduces his own brokers. Baruch plays big time in Wall Street. And they're off to the races. And Churchill signals to Van Antwerp, I am ready to take command. That's, that is literally what he says. And he starts dealing in one week in October 1929. He, he does today's equivalent of 4 million turnover. And the next week he does 6 million turnover. In and out, sell short, whatever. A lot of it on Simmons. And then, I mean, you know... Your history. Um, the market cracks. And I think it's uh, the Thursday near the, near the end of October um, that the, the banks sort of buy back and they contain the loss to 2 or 3%. The Friday is a bit more of a problem. But Churchill still, you know, he, he actually, what he did was consult Van Antwerp on the Thursday night and say, what do you think I should do? And Van Antwerp gives this response, which I've seen so many stockbrokers give, and they still give. They say, I think today's falls provide the springboard for a constructive advance tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know... Churchill goes there, he spends another half a million dollars the next day buying as, as the stocks tumble. I'm going to read you a bit about what happens over the weekend. The first inkling of serious losses did not come until Monday morning when Churchill tried to make sense of Hutton's valuation based on prices at the close of business the previous Friday evening. He cabled Hutton urgently to ask whether there had been a mistake. No came the reply. Share prices continued to fall on the Monday and showed no sign of stopping. The Dow Jones index ended the day down by a record 13%. Bernard Baruch had arranged a dinner that evening for New York's financial elite to bid Churchill farewell. The guests were stoic, and Churchill's parting toast was to friends and former millionaires. The full extent of his own losses did not begin to sink in until the following day, Tuesday, 29th October, while Churchill crossed the Atlantic. He used prices from the ship's tipotake to recalculate his fortunes. The Dow Jones index had lost another 12%. Over two trading days, almost half the value of the market had disappeared. That evening, the ticker tape did not stop recording its litany of losses until 7.45 p.m. Churchill's loss on Simmons alone, now down to $85 a share, had cost him £32,000. Well, that's um, over half a million, one, the one share, 600000 I think. He'd lost, I mean, I calculate he'd lost $1.25 in today's prices. And you know, he lost... The say he lost half as much again the next year because neither he nor Bernard Baruch nor anybody really, you know, they didn't, they, they thought this was a passing storm. And, you know, as a result, he had to, he had lost the entire Marlborough advance before writing a word. He was in trouble with the bank because he'd promised them the money and he'd sent it elsewhere. And he had to write like crazy for the next two or three years to try and keep things afloat and the bank at bay. Um, he he uh, actually came over here to lecture 
1930, well, the end of 1931, 1932, he did another lecture tour because he expected that to net him about $900,000. Unfortunately, he was hit by a taxi on one of the first days. And the, the tour had to be cut back a bit, so he never earned that. But what he did learn about from a bank manager, U.S. bank manager, he wanted to open a dollar account to receive his fees. And he was very impressed by the First National City Bank because they had mechanized statements when everything was still quill pen almost in London. And Mr. George Deweese, the vice president, told him about currency futures. He said, you know, you've got you, you, the dollar strong against sterling at the moment because sterling had come out of the gold link. Uh, you're, you want to capture today's rate, but you're worried that you're not going to be paid for three months. I've got, it's currency futures. You can hedge it. And he was quite right. I mean, this was, you know, Mr. Deweese was quite right. And Churchill understood, and he said, yep, let's do that. And so he did it. But then he soon started to think, well, hang on a second. I don't have to use this just for hedging. I can use this for speculation. And the great thing is I don't have to put any money up front. I don't need capital, and I haven't got much. In fact, he had none. And so he starts to be a major... Well, major. I mean, he starts to, you know, active trading in currency futures. He had three currencies going against sterling at one time in, in, in the early 30s. And in order to sort of keep up with this, I mean, he didn't, unfortunately, when he was back, you know, there weren't Bloomberg screens. So what he arranged was for the International Herald Tribune, which was printed in Paris, to be flown to London a copy to be flown to London, then put on a train down to the nearest place to his country house, and then put in a taxi from the train station to his home. And this was a daily ritual. And then his secretaries copied out the relevant prices, handed them to him in the middle of a meeting about German rearmament or whatever. And his face would either go down or would occasionally go up. But so I, I'm just trying to paint you a picture. I mean, I'm afraid that what happened in the 1930s was that his debts went almost in a straight line upwards. Um, by 1938, he, he tried various economy regimes. I think I detail about six here. In one of them, he says, no more champagne is to be bought. That's where the title comes from. Um, but uh, they, they reached, they went up $3 million, $4 million, $5 million. By 1938, $5 million debt. His sole asset chart, well, he cannot sell. He tries. He puts it on the market at £30,000, £25,000, £20,000. No takers. And there's an implode. The, 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 in 1938, U.S. share prices come down another 20%. And um, there's an implosion of his finances. And he has to be rescued. And he is, remarkably. I mean, I, I haven't really got time to go into that, but he is rescued by a guy who writes out a check for today's equivalent of nearly a million dollars. I mean, it's not a complete rescue. And in fact, one of my, one of my most surprising finds to me was that in, soon after he became prime minister in June 1940, within weeks of becoming prime minister, he, he realized, as he was shuttling to and fro France, trying to keep France in the battle and prepare Britain against invasion, which everybody thought was coming, he realizes he cannot pay his bank interest and his tax and his insurance premiums at the end of June 1940. If he can't pay and he's declared bankrupt, he can't be an MP and therefore he can't be prime minister. So he summons the same team that bailed him out in 1938 and says, I've got a problem. And the same guy writes another check in secret. You know, he, doesn't, he doesn't even write it to Churchill. He writes it to the intermediary who endorses it onto Churchill. But it's there in the bank account. You know, this, the bank statements are fantastic. <laughs> um, and so Churchill, mid-June, pays off. Various bills, pays his interest, and 10 days later he gives the order to sink the French fleet, which was the decision that made everybody realize Britain was going to fight. And then he tries to get America into the war. That's his strategy from the word go, because 
even though he had such a painful, uh, expensive time in America, he has got to know America much better than any other British politician at the time. And he understands its strength and the depth and strength, and that's his strategy, get America in. And, he, you know, obviously the, the Japanese help at Pearl Harbor. But uh, the tide does turn, and it turns not only for the war, but it turns for his own finances. And he ends the war actually quite with, with today's equivalent of $6 million in the bank. Don't believe this stuff at the end of the war. You know, he had to sell Chartwell because of the... He had $6 million in the bank, plus a new London home, because he sold film rights to his old books, and he was extremely aggressive on tax avoidance. If, if any of you are interested in tax avoidance, there's a very cheap masterclass in this book. <laughs> and I'm just going to finish, really, by um, reading you what he wrote in the immediate aftermath of the 1929 crash, and, and this is, you know, he, he's just got back to England, he's just given the bad news to Clementine, he's just given the bad news to the bank. He's no idea how he's going to survive, but still, he can sort of see through that, because this is what he writes in an article for an American, for, for the Daily Telegraph, actually. And he's writing it about the crash. Under my very window, a gentleman cast himself down 15 stories and was dashed to pieces. No one could doubt that this financial disaster, huge as it is, cruel as it is to thousands, is only a passing episode in the march of a valiant and serviceable people. So, strategically, he can see through it. And um, he called himself both Foolish Moth and Downy Bird. Danny Bird, who picks himself up, you know, he gets damaged, picks himself up, dusts himself down, gets, gets back. And that's what he did. That's what his ancestor had done. And this, both are in here. Uh, and I think that's what makes it human. And it, it's been huge fun to research. And I hope you'll find it huge fun to read. Thank you very much. <laughs>